Hello and welcome to the Palladium Podcast. This is episode 13. I'm your host, Jonah Bennett, Editor-in-Chief. I'm Ash Milton, Managing Editor. I'm Wolf Tyvey, another editor. <laughs> another <This> editor. <laughs> this week we're joined by a special guest, Gladden Pappin, who is Assistant Professor of Politics at the University of Dallas and Deputy Editor of American Affairs. Gladden, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. All right. As, as always, we're going to go through our question of the week from the reader mailbag. Let me just, let me just, uh, run oh man, what's there. going on over there? That's, uh, actually, that's just a trash can, but I thought it would be a, a helpful sound effect. That is where um, most of it ends up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the question of the week is which previously human powered activity should never have been automated? Ash, go ahead. Okay. So this is a very classical answer, but I think it's a timeless one. When we automated away retaining information via writing, we lost the oral memory that was our rightful heritage and the bardic traditions that came with it. This was a tragedy for the human species. Wolf? Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to go with the automobile. I think the automobile really wrecked the way we do cities and the way we move around. I think people, uh, people have really degenerated from our glorious Ice Age ancestors uh, <laughs> since, the, since the automobile. <laughs> All right, um, I'm going to go with, with central heating as one point because it creates atomization. And then, of course, central air conditioning weakens the mind and the body. It's true. Cold creates virtue. Yeah, uh, glad. <laughs> <laughs> I thought these were supposed to be uh, unserious, you know. These are... These are <laughs> I'm in complete 100% serious on all these. Uh, I mean, you gotta, I mean, but you know, you gotta call the car the mechanical Jacobin though. I mean, if, if Russell Kirk made any good contributions, it was, it was that term, the mechanical Jacobin. Uh, You know, I gotta, being a, being a Benjamin man, I gotta go with the work of art, uh, in the age of mechanical reproduction. Um, so, which goes all the way back to, um, obviously goes all the way back to the printing press itself and uh, can possibly uh, ultimately be blamed on the Franciscans. You know, we used Ooh, to have, uh, yeah, we used to have, um, you know, uh, a, a lot of scribal culture was obviously uh, liturgical texts and those were always tied to particular places, the needs of particular communities, um, you know, particularly the monasteries which were, which were bound by a, a vow of stability. So when the Franciscans came along and uh, started wandering hither and yon, you know they they needed uh, they needed lightweight, uh, portable uh, liturgical books, uh, which ultimately led to the foundation of uh, Penguin books uh, in the early um, to mid 1200s. So, the little Penguin paperbacks um, and uh, easily reproducible work of arts I think go all the way back. So handcrafted buses that are only at natural temperature run by humans is how we solve this collective problem but we got to open the windows okay like <laughs> if true. we're not going to have air conditioning this is our new industrial policy anyways, project you, you know i have the yeah. windows open if we didn't i mean if we didn't have air conditioning we might have to build walls with like stone and stuff yeah oh that would be look see see look we've really identified the four most important problems facing humanity all right all right that's enough of that let's move on to the rest of the podcast um, so Gladden, uh, just so our listeners have a bit more uh, background info, why don't you give us a brief bio about yourself and talk about uh, your ideological evolution and, and what you're currently working on? Um, ideological evolution, wow. Um, that's a, that's a, yeah, I'm, I'm presuming a complicated lot. one, I guess, or at least it's not a... <laughs> 
no evolution whatsoever um, in, my, <laughs> in my ideology. Well, I am an assistant professor of politics uh, at the University of Dallas, uh, starting my uh, third year here, been here uh, two years, um, working backward uh, to, to before that. Um, I was a research fellow at uh, the Notre Dame Institute for Advanced Study uh, and for a semester, and the Notre Dame uh, De Nicola, now the De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture, uh, for three and a half years. Uh, it was during that period, sort of late, late in my time there, although with no institutional connection, obviously, that uh, American Affairs got started. Uh, so we've got to throw that, um, that part of the um, sort of job biography in there as well. Um, before, before Notre Dame, I got my PhD from the uh, government department, in the government department um, at Harvard uh, in political philosophy, and uh, had also gotten my uh, undergraduate degree there, uh, bachelor's degree of history. Um, so that's more or less my, uh, you know, adult, um, you know, work biography. Uh, after college, I did a little stint on Wall Street for a little bit, because um, that was the cool thing to do. Um, but for me, it only lasted uh, one month. Um, so, nice. Uh, <laughs> got in, uh, got out before the crash, uh, whichever crash it was, I don't know, but I was out way beforehand. Um, and um, uh, then taught Latin uh, for a year, and then went back to uh, went back to graduate school. So um, that's my biography, um, at least in the at least in the, in the academic sense. Um, in the geographic sense, uh, I was born in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. I uh, grew up in Arkansas and uh, South Carolina uh, before going up to northern climes for essentially. Uh, 17 years, um, and uh, somehow or another managed to, uh, without intending to do so, uh, wind up back roughly in the part of the country uh, that my uh, my family uh, are from on both sides, uh, Arkansas on one hand, Oklahoma on the other, so divide by two, and you get what my father calls Baja, Oklahoma, or Texas. Um, so, uh, you know, I, ideological evolution, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure you might have to, might have to hone that question a bit. Um, you know, I've always, I've always been, a, 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 we, we, yeah, we may have to, un, I may have to unfold that one a little bit, um, and I'm not sure how interesting it is either, um, but uh, I've always been some sort of conservative, at least since I started thinking about uh, politics. Uh, my father is a professor of philosophy. Uh, his specialty was is uh, Edmund Burke and uh, modern existentialism. So from that, I kind of got an interest in uh, forms of conservative thought on the one hand. Although I'm not a, you know, probably because he is a scholar of Burke, I'm not. Um, so I always had an interest in um, kind of the the sources of um, intellectual thinking. Uh, on the right, uh, and also in um, you know forms of modern thinking that are that are sometimes uh, neglected on the right, uh, and I think I got both of those from him. Um, so uh, you know, I'm a I'm a cradle Catholic, uh, and that was al always also part of my sort of uh, initial approach to to thinking about political matters, or rather, I was also interested in. Uh, you know, the church's account of the modern world, 
and uh, you know engagement with it and and uh, and critical response to it. Um, you know, in the in the early two thousands, when I was um, a student in college, um, you know, I was uh, I guess I was already slightly on again, this won't be a perfect word for it, you know, but, but slightly on the, the non-neoconservative uh, side um, of uh, the Republican Party and conservative politics in the United States. Um, but uh, as a practical matter, you know, I, didn't, I didn't, didn't go do anything in Washington. You know, I turned uh, from, from intellectual history uh, toward history of political thought um, and uh, Learned a lot uh, from the school of Leo Strauss, uh, and insofar as Harvey Mansfield, who was my uh, graduate advisor, uh, was a part of that. Um, and I think in in that world, uh, you know, Pierre Menon was always a um, you know pretty strong intellectual influence on on me as a kind of Catholic uh, thinking within the thinking about the develop thinking critically about uh, modern politics uh, and modern liberalism. Um, I've, I think I've probably always uh, been interested in criticism of liberalism. Uh, that for me started when I was a college freshman, and uh, <laughs> you know I think uh, I think I thought liberalism was whatever um, you know Rush Limbaugh said it was on the radio, um, and so I saw a little book for sale called "Liberalism Is a Sin," um, <laughs> and, and I placed an pla placed an order for it. Um, and, uh, and read it as a freshman. I was like, that's, that's, that's not the liberal, not the liberalism that I thought we were going to be, uh, discussing. You discovered the liberal in your head. <laughs> right. Um, so, uh, anyway, um, you know, my, uh, from, from there, my, my intellectual trajectory, I guess, has taken, uh, a number of different directions, um, you know, in in political philosophy, I've always been interested in uh, in the nature of modern thought, um, character of modern liberalism, responses to it. Um, you know how sort of people on the right should think about that. Um, also, from a Catholic perspective, uh, and I've always and perhaps because of that, I've always been interested in uh, forms of postmodern thought as well. Um, so I got really into Baudrillard for a number of years. And uh, didn't really know how to write about him um, until um, published an article on Baudrillard um, for American Affairs about a year ago. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's much to learn from the from the postmodern tradition about, uh, or from all the different parts of the. I mean, it's a varied set of uh, traditions or thinkers who can't all be lumped under that. That label, in a way, was just the label that was was put on it during the um, kind of university culture wars of the 1990s. But, you know, broadly, the, you know, I've been interested in everyone from the, you know, critical theorists to uh, postmoderns to sort of uh, theorists of technology um, like McLuhan or Benjamin. Um, and I put Baudrillard probably in that tradition as well. Um, so that's... That's a yeah, kind see, of this overview. is another level because there's always been this tradition. Uh, I mean, people like Christopher Lashie's conservatives reading Marx or Marxists who kind of start taking a critical line uh, against postmodernism. But th this is like another step where now postmodernism as well gets incorporated into the broader critique. Right, right, right. I, I think... Um, 
I, I think what we're going to do is um, we will focus on some of your work as well momentarily, Gladden. But I think it'll be useful for our listeners if you talk a little bit about American affairs and just sort of sure. what's the project and what's its major goal. Because you publish a, a variety of interesting pieces. You have some very in-depth stuff on industrial policy. You have some stuff that focuses more on on theory. Um, I'm thinking of stuff like uh, Adrian Vermeule's piece on the invisible hand. And of course, your piece on the party of the state, which we'll discuss momentarily. But just discuss the project as a whole um, so our, our listeners can get... Uh, a bit of familiarity with it. Sure. Well, first of all, I have to congratulate uh, all of you for for running a very fine um, run, running a very fine site as well. Uh, Palladium oh, has been has been very interesting um, as it's come on the scene, and I and I uh, and I check it regularly and have have profited from a lot of the essays there. Um, well, American Affairs for those who don't who don't know about it, its background. Um, you know, it began as a kind of anonymous blog um, during the 2016 campaign, and you know, apologies for mentioning that if it's already uh, widely known, because I know the the origin story has been has been uh, told and 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 written about. But it's kind of funny. Um, you know, we uh, several of us, um, Julius Krein, uh, myself, um, Michael Anton, and a few others who still or nameless, started this little anonymous blog during the 2016 campaign called Journal of American Greatness. Um, and uh, our thought there uh, was to sort of explain the rationale behind the Trump campaign, uh, explain what we thought was going on, um, sort of show how sort of neoliberal expectations um, about the um, you know, ad ad advance of you know, modern global society and, you know, highly, um, you know, globalized economy, etc., um, had become sort of unhinged, maybe as Baudrillard would say, had gone into orbit um, around, um, around political phenomena and separated themselves from that. Um, and, you know, and when we used that side also to kind of uh, of course, it wasn't merely just explaining the 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 the, the Trump campaign and the sort of sources of what we thought were the sources of uh, contemporary discontent, but we were kind of egging things egging things on as well. Um, you know, the uh, we were all writing from behind pseudonyms. Um, the blog got really big. You know, at one point we at one point we were getting you know fifty thousand hits a day, something like that, and we decided. Um, you know, at, at at some point, it's not right to remain behind these uh, these internet handles, and uh, so we yanked the blog. Um, it you know, disappeared in a disappeared in a cloud of smoke, um, and at that point, uh, decided to launch a journal uh, where we could collect everything um, that was of interest to us. Um, you know, growing out of that uh, initial project. So whereas the blog had been a kind of slightly pugnacious um, uh, thing proper to the campaign you know we wanted to have um, wanted to we saw like we saw we saw a niche available um, that wasn't being occupied for intelligent articles um, on all aspects of contemporary uh, political uh, you know economic or political economic uh, landscape um, as well as cultural criticism um, and more yeah, cultural criticism and more theoretical articles 
um, of the sort that were also of interest to us. Um, Julius Krein and I, um, you know, have known one another for a long time, and you know, we we you know share a lot of the lot of similar interests. Um, you know, he was for many years in the in the in the business and investing world, um, and had come to see you know firsthand uh, the way that so many different aspects of the um, you know neoconservative political and neoliberal economic project. Um, so many different ways that that was not working, you know, firsthand. Um, and we found after, after, you know, talking this through during 2015, 2016, um, and into, uh, the beginning of 2017, that we were basically on the same page, um, and, uh, that there was no journal that was, uh, you know, serving this, uh, serving this intersection of, of, of interests. Um, and we, and so we decided to start something, uh, in order to fill that. Um, so obviously, as we've said from the beginning, um, you know, we thought that there was a, you know, a, a, a signal failure, you know, both from an intellectual and a policy standpoint, you know, primarily on the right. Um, you know, both of us were not to say that there wasn't also, uh, you know, failure of, of, uh, political analysis and, uh, policy analysis on the left too. You know, maybe there is. We've published a lot um, of articles in that vein. Um, but both of us, as a on a as a as a practical matter, we're coming from positions on the right. Uh, we were, have always been interested in a lot of um, you know takes from takes on particularly on political and economic ma political economic matters um, from writers on the left, uh, many of whom we you know went on to publish. Uh, and, you know, we, we founded the journal uh, in order to um, put all those things, make all those things available in one place, um, you know, show the ways that, uh, that um, you know, the, the political character um, of, uh, of modern life had been sort of misdiagnosed or, or um, you know, pushed in, a, pushed in a flawed direction. Yeah, I have to uh, say, speaking, so many uh, speaking in terms of your, uh, it sounds like both of you have some private sector background as well. And that's something that I've been somewhat impressed by, especially with the more economics and industry geared articles on the site, because, uh, you know, I, I think that especially in, you'll read stuff from circles, which are very much geared to a kind of free market e ideology and coming from an economics background myself. I mean, you know, there there's a certain type of person who's very into the economic theory here, but ironically has never worked in the private sector, right? They've always been yeah, in the world of academia. Yeah, that's the entire think conservative tanks. intellectual movement. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I uh, th there's a sort of trope, right, of the person who has very idealistic uh, notions in, in college or whatever, but then they, they start working and, you know, they, they become pragmatic and wisen up. For me, it was probably more the opposite. Now, I was never a sort of committed you know, ideological libertarian, really, but I would have probably been more sympathetic, uh, in a way, just from the stuff that I was learning when I was a student. And it was actually for me working in the private sector, and, you know, get, getting to see how these things actually play out and how, uh, whether it's how a corporation is run, or how governments and industry actually interact with one another, the the sort of theory level stuff is often pretty bad at describing the whole picture here. Yeah, you take in a lot of uh, data, a lot of micro data about how firms actually operate when you're actually in one, because a textbook simply can't replicate that experience. 
Um, and one, a couple of the things that I like about American affairs is that uh, it's, it's proven, I think, that political philosophy maybe has been a bit of a, a dead field in the last 20 years or so, maybe even longer. Uh, but the way American affairs does it, uh, it, it does it in such a way as to like put a fresh perspective on a lot of issues that have become stale and, and done like unique uh, and interesting theoretical work. And it's, it's really like livened up the discussion in a way that, that hasn't existed maybe since, you know, since the, at least on the right, since the early days of National Review, I'd probably say. Um, and, then, and then the second, of course, is that it's, it has the quality that it has precisely because I think people who would normally be selected into, uh, you know, cognitively demanding occupations like finance or, or you know, other areas are actually deciding, and, and this is Mike Anton too, right? Deciding to, instead of just focusing their entire time on that project, do something in the area of political philosophy and political thought and social science as well. That's that's rare, and that's why I think you're seeing uh, the high quality of work from American affairs. No, I think you're right. Um, you know, or right that um, you know, there's certainly been uh, some kind of problem in political philosophy on the right um, over the last generation. I'm not sure even though I'm even though I'm in the field that I could put my finger exactly on <laughs> on what it is um, you know but it, it may be it, it, it may in fact be a problem of the division of labor um, you know that on the right uh, the political philosophers have been those who are you know um, intelligently and uh, critically and you know helpfully trying to remind us of the you know, true nature of the liberal tradition or some more noble version of the liberal tradition or something like that or or you know to supply you know from from other better traditions within the history of political philosophy elements from you know Aristotle or something like that could that could you know firm up uh, the otherwise um, sort of shallow commitment of liberal societies to the common that's kind of been the you know the the state of of, uh, of political philosophy on the right, and the economic thinking has basically been outsourced uh, to various libertarians. So you get these weird combinations at um, at sort of conservative. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a whole world of of uh, conservative uh, intellectual formation programs for you know college students and young professionals and things like that. Um, and it's like a continuous combination of things like. Edmund Burke and you know Adam Smith and Hayek or something like that. So, so like somehow you're somehow you're supposed to be, you know, very critical about, um, you know, you're supposed to be come out sort of, um, you know, I'm in favor of, um, you know, a more traditional lifestyle and um, I have planning. no and I'm totally against central planning and the state is dangerous. Um, and I have no further ideas and no, and, you know, and, 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 and then you, and then you either become a, you know, you either go into, go into finance or something like that. And, and, uh, you know, if you're lucky, you'll, you'll have a, if you're lucky, you'll be in a type of financial position where you can learn, um, something about how, uh, markets and economies actually work today. Uh, or you'll enter political philosophy or DC or something like that, and um, and that and that. Um, so I think it's maybe a division of labor problem, 
um, you know, going back to the way that the modern conservative movement has been constructed for, for generations. So, uh, you know, given all those past seminars, which I think you have a very accurate read on, um, if you were to construct a, a syllabus for something similar that kind of reflected more interesting traditions of, of critiques of liberalism as such, what would that syllabus look like? Um, <laughs> that's a good... I know, it's a, it's a big question. It's a big question. Well, it's, it, it is and it isn't. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, some of us actually founded a program um, to, to do that. So there's a, there's a kind of counter summer program for, um, for young intellectuals on the right, uh, particularly in a Catholic tradition, however, uh, which is called Pro Civitate Dei, um, and uh, actually just got back, you know, from uh, from helping that out um, earlier in June. Um, and it's not heavily it's not heavily uh, syllabus driven, so I don't really know how to uh, I don't really know how to construct uh, construct the right syllabus. Um, I don't have a good answer for that. Um, at least, at least not off the top of my head. What a, what a, what a. Yeah, I, I don't have, a, I don't have a great answer to that. Um, I mean, it's, it's. But I think, like I, think I mean, I mean, like, I'm just trying to dance around from assigning American affairs as you know, reading <laughs> for the. You know, <laughs> well, you, you I mean, just assign palladium, and then yeah, there we go. I'll, I'll assign palladium in American affairs. Yeah. Um, no, it's it's. Uh, um, you know, the, there's no set of theoretical readings from which one can have a have a, a out of which one can develop, um, you know, a, a direct understanding of of the you know state of modern economies, other than observing them and and uh, participating in them. Yeah, I mean, you know, if I were thinking about this question, it would be something along the lines of, here's the people you read about the notion of a common good and political theology, essentially. And then here's the people you read on how to analyze the current, like, structures in which power is centered. And I think that when I look at American affairs, that really is the thing that stands out, that there have always been, you know, interesting discussions that have gone on about each of those things, but they've often not come together because, in a way, the, the, the way of thinking about these things can just be very distinct, right? So someone who's looking at, like, the philosophy of the common good is often not going to interact much with someone who's looking at, um, like, export and markets and all of this dreary economic stuff. But, in fact, one of those is the manifestation of the other. And so that, that's extremely important, I think. No, I think you're right. I mean, it's a it's an ongoing project uh, for us in order to you know try to bring those articles together in one place. So, um, you know, maybe uh, maybe we can collect some of the best articles into a, into a, you know into a, a volume at some sort um, at some point, but um, doesn't seem to doesn't seem to exist at the moment. So um, I, I do want to keep talking about uh, or expanding on. Some of these broader questions, like like in, in industrial policy or or the idea of post liberalism, etc. But I think the a good place to start would be a piece that you wrote, Gladden, toward a party of the state. Um, so this came out some time ago, I think in twenty eighteen. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but I, I remember when this piece came out, uh, it definitely got shared around a lot. I found it an extremely interesting presentation of this idea of the state, which is something Palladium has written about as well. Um, and in, in this piece, uh, just for people listening, 
the piece presents um, this current context we're living in where a lot of sides of the spectrum are refining these critiques of liberalism as we've known it, um, and, and particularly a focus on what's happening on the American right. Um, b before the article had come out, Patrick Deneen's book, Why Liberalism Failed, had come out and generated discussion, uh, a number of other works. I think this was before the recent debate between French and Amari, which is again, uh, kept this going. But the piece is more uh, looking at how liberalism and the state have interacted with each other as concepts, and then how this phenomenon that we call political conservatism has arisen in response to that, but also as a key part of it. So um, I, I encourage our readers to take a look through it because it's very well thought out and a lot of moving parts. So I'm not going to summarize the whole thing here. But one line that stood out to me quite strongly was liberalism was a theory to explain the state, conservatism to explain liberties, but not the state. And so one of the things you talk about is how liberalism provides this account of how these structures, these political structures, these power structures arise after the fact. So liberalism itself is younger than the structures themselves, but it seeks to provide a narrative of how they came about. Then conservatism, uh, in response to this, kind of tries to circumvent the state as a concept and, and explain uh, the liberties that have existed and try to create this other narrative. So I, I'm wondering if you could maybe elaborate a bit on this and how you think of the notion of liberalism, since obviously, you know, as we kind of touched on earlier, it has a lot of different meanings. But even within, let's say, more intellectual circles where we talk about liberalism in the context of America or the Enlightenment, even there, it's usually not very well defined. So I'm interested to hear how you produce more rigor uh, into that discussion. Um, yeah, no, I, uh, um, well, there are a lot of different, a lot of different aspects that you've brought up. Um, so I don't want to, don't want to drone on too long and, in, in answering them. Maybe we can, maybe we can keep going back and forth. Sure. We'll, we'll make it a back uh, and forth. Yeah. No, no, no. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, the article is an attempt to critique conservatism, um, and I mean, which one can't do enough of. I mean, you know, I, mm. I, 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 you know, we've published a good amount of sort of critiques of conservatism, um, but um, you know, the sort of non-status forms of conservatism, or 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 to borrow a, a recent Palladium concept, you know, forms of conservatism that aren't conscious of the way that they. Uh, wish to use the state or or what that or or don't have an awareness of what that mean um, continue to flourish it's not like the party of the state was convened you know weeks after the publication of this article and now you know everything's changed um, you know we could you know republish it probably every year and it would take a while for take a while for things to move um, I mean in this context do you think that conservatism is a coherent concept to talk about like are we just talking about a set of movements or is there some coherent phenomenon? Or set of ideas going on here. That's a good question. Um, you know, it's one that I it's, it's one that I struggle with or or go back and forth about um, in my own mind. I mean, I'm not sure that conservatism today actually resolves into anything uh, remotely coherent. Um, you know, it's it's it, it's it. I think it's certainly. Um, I mean, I would propose a thought experiment. Um, you know, first just referring to left and right. Um, and seeing whether one can, you know, whether one can succeed or not in, um, 
you know, thinking of thinking of oneself as being on on the left or on the right, and if so, what would that mean? Um, but, you know, I mean, there are, um, it's 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 may not be necessary to, may not be necessary or helpful for conservatives to think of themselves, you know, primarily as as uh, as being characterized by that label, you know, precisely for the reasons that I state in the article. Um, you know, the 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 term refers to uh, preserving things, um, and conservatives tend to use that, at least when they're forced to explain themselves um, intellectually, as you know, preserving liberties or preserving traditions. Um, but they're not very good at explaining how that will happen, particularly be, yeah, be, particularly because they see they 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 tend to think that. Um, you know, things can be preserved without power, um, and that's that seems to be a that seems to be a nub of the problem within conservatism. Um, that they that that many conservatives, you know, particularly you know in the Anglo-American tradition, have sort of dissociated um, their goals from the question of power. I think that even goes. I think that even goes as far as raising question as when conservatives raise questions like, um, you know, is it possible to have a uh, religious conversion of society? And is it possible in heavily secular? Is it, you know under under what set of conditions would heavily secular societies, um, you know, return to religion? And you know the the conservative response to that, you know, in the framework of uh, an understanding of conservatism as you know advocating for you know the preservation of uh, preservation of traditions or preservations of preservation of liberties is either on the one hand uh, despair you know it's not possible you know these things are lost and it's not possible to recover them um, or a kind of you know magical hope that everyone will sort of uh, wake up um, and you know recover something that's been lost. So I think that more or less char that characterizes a lot of the. Um, I mean, that probably doesn't characterize all of the sort of intellectual conservative movement today, but um, I think it cap. I think a lot of works that are published uh, fall into one of those two camps. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think. To really characterize, I, I think you've raised some really good questions here about like what is left and right, what is conservatism, is it even a coherent thing, and then and then getting it down to like the conservatives don't actually have a coherent theory of power, uh, and thus don't have a coherent theory of how to actually accomplish anything. Um, I, and my characterization of conservatism that I that I sort of always use is that in a kind of politically pluralistic society. Uh, one that makes room for political debate and opposition, in particular a democracy, but the, like non-democratic uh, governments can also do this. If you make room for a political opposition, it kind of also mandates into existence a political opposition. Um, like even even if the material for such a thing does not actually exist, right? So in the American system, for whatever reason, it seems to turn out that we have a two-party system. Um, that's not a reflection of there actually being sort of two underlying tendencies or two power centers or two two parties. Um, it's it's just a, sort of an artifact of, of how our system is set up. And so you tend to have, you know, you've got your ruling class, they're trying to run the state, they're trying to do their thing. 
maybe they have some crazy ideas about that. Um, and you have people who oppose those, the, that vision and have an alternate vision. Uh, often that's going to be sort of a populist thing or they're going to oppose whatever the latest thing is. It might not be any coherent opposition at all. It might be a whole, um, like a, a big tent kind of thing of, of a, a whole bunch of different oppositions. You know, you've got your libertarians, you've got your religious oppositions, you've got your, you know, various other like cultural and, and, uh, um, various oppositions to whatever the elite policy is. And they all end up kind of, um, in the vehicle of that second party. But that second party is not something that's like a coherent, um, power seeking organization. It's, it's just this thing that's been mandated into existence and thus doesn't necessarily have any sort of political reality to it or, or any, uh, reason that it would discover the existence of power. And in fact, when you start to really understand and discover the existence of power, I think you rapidly realize that, well, being in a fake or, or like, a uh, being in an opposition that's, that's in some sense artificial is not a good place to be um, if you're actually trying to get things done. And so the people who really understand power are going to kind of bounce themselves out of that, out of that faction. And the people in there are just going to kind of studiously ignore uh, the, the power issue. And so I think that's like, this is, this would be my diagnosis of, of kind of what's going on with conservatism is that we've, for whatever reason, in a politically pluralistic society, or we have a politically pluralistic society, and then that has created room for these these populist and conservative challenges, even though they're, they actually exist at a very low level of, of sort of reality or competence. Um, no, I think I think that's right. I mean, it 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 you know what you say makes the the thought that the thought that was coming through my mind um, as you were talking is you know why is it that Americans think, or people in liberal democratic societies think, um, maybe this is, maybe this isn't as broad as liberal democrat democratic societies. Maybe it is, um, maybe it is just us or just two parties, two party societies. Um, why do we think that our political system is more responsive, or why do we think of our political system as, you know, being responsive um, to, you know, changes in demand? from um, from you know me from members of our society I mean as you say um, you know the two-party system is one that we're stuck with for or seem to be stuck with for a variety of strange you know historical and constitutional um, reasons you know we we you know when we think about our society as being democratic or when we think about our government as being democratic we think of it as being very responsive you know, when we think about um, uh, the United States as a constitutional system, we remember that it was instead at least partly designed not to be too rapidly responsive to, um, you know, changes in the changes in the political views of the populace. Um, but I think at the moment, I mean, if we if we consider that at the moment, um, you know, there is some fundamental disconnect in liberal democratic societies, you know, between, um, you know, between the populace and, and what they see their, um, you know, political system as pursuing, 
um, we would have to conclude that the political system of the United States is not nearly as responsive as it could be, uh, or not ne not even nearly not even as rapidly responsive um, as the political system of Italy, for example. I mean, just think about how difficult it would be um, in the United States to, or we see how difficult it it is um, to attempt to reconfigure. Um, you know the the ideological character of either of the major two parties. You know, let alone um, you know have a have a broader reconfiguration of what those parties are, how many there are, you know, which the major parties are, etc. Um, you know, the parliamentary systems for all of their. Um, I mean, every every democratic system has advantages and disadvantages, um, but there has been you know Italy would be one example. Um, France would be another example, although not necessarily, um, definitely not in the same way, you know, where there's, there's been you know, a rapid change um, in the character of their, um, their partisan division. Um, and it, 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 it strikes me as being really strange that, you know, we, we, at the moment that we think of our political system in the United States as being democratic, we think of it as being responsive and yet it's so obvious that it's has yeah. has it isn't except in the person of the president and except in the presidency yeah so i mean one of the the, the obvious sort of uh, pithy explanation for why people believe that that democracies are responsive is because that's what we're taught in 19 like ninth grade civics class um and then like there just kind of isn't a vehicle to ever challenge that view on a wide scale um, there, there isn't, uh, you know, a bunch of political theorists somewhere who are act actively kind of reflecting on and challenging the nature of, of democracy. Um, but that's, that's just sort of an aside, I, I, as a larger point I wanted to make sort of, uh, piling onto what you're saying is there's kind of like two dimensions, um, you know, two dimensions, uh, at least right here on which we can evaluate a government. One is, um, the sort of stability and coherence of the government over time so that you're able to have uh, a long, um, you know, long-term planning, long-term policies um, and, and some level of coherence. And I think that's what, you know, the founding fathers were thinking when they set the thing up to not be very responsive to these, uh, you know, potentially flip-flopping um the loyalties of the public. Um, and, but then uh, on the other hand, you have the ability to change direction and to get things done. Um, and I actually don't think these, uh, well, the ability to change direction, to get things done and to be responsive to, to new problems and new needs. Um, I don't think these things are like, are, are opposed. Uh, I don't, I don't think you have a necessary trade off between them. I think the American system is not that great at at either of them um though obviously does pretty well for itself overall or has done pretty well for itself overall um but i i just wanted to make that point that like there are these two variables we're talking about and often they seem to be in trade-off but i don't think that's like an absolute trade-off i think it's just relative to our level of like political technology well i'd like to point out too though that right in in american history it seems like the presidents 
that end up becoming um, the great presidents of American history, essentially. Uh, your, your, your Washington, your Lincoln, your FDR, maybe your Eisenhower. It seems to occur when th there's such a strong agreement um, within the, the major segments of the governing class that these checks and balances which define American liberalism become, uh, if not unnecessary, at least used less and less. Uh, there's more high trust and more high cooperation going on. And so I think there is, in fact, a tension here in the American structure where uh, it's meant to be this trait of American liberalism that, uh, you you know, it, it's essentially very difficult to get total coordination going on. But in fact, in the moments when that does occur, those are the moments Americans remember as the great periods of their history. Yeah, well, like I've heard this little, I don't, I heard this little sort of anecdote about FDR that, that like the frame at the time was not okay you know a bunch of people suddenly figure out how to trust each other and work within the system to get things done or something it's more like you essentially have this you know fdr and these new new class coming in and saying look we're going to rebuild the country we're going to fix everything we're going to change it all and um and like you know, the constitution can either go along with this or, or like, basically we're going to scrap it. Um, that that's one of the narratives I've heard on FDR, which is like the constitution wasn't driving at that point basically is, is I think, uh, the takeaway there. I mean, another way of getting at this question is, you know, what, what do people think they're doing when they are electing the president? You know, do they, uh, what do they think they're doing? What, what is it that they think they're electing? Um, and I have no idea how you would test this, but I'm pretty sure that they think they're electing the legislator-in-chief. I mean, that's how the entire political campaign is constructed. You know, that's how the media discussion of it is presented. You know, that's what, I mean, every kind of um, crisis article about Trump, um, you know, around the time of his election was, you know, written on the presumption that he would be a legislator-in-chief, even though... He's not, and the so, at least the he's not. He's not. Te yeah, the president is the phenomenon. Um, so a lot of the frustration within the, or a lot of the frustration that I think ordinary Americans have about Congress or the government as a whole is, you know, located in that disjunction. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, so I think so the... so it would be so it would be better if they actually did elect the legislator in chief. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, it certainly formalized what everyone is actually trying to do. I, I think so. Part of the part of the sort of disconnect and, and frustration is like the the president, especially now, does in fact have like this huge influence over at least which laws get enforced on the street level, right? Or, or like formally you know, the executive is responsible for the enforcement uh, of law and the carrying out of, of, uh, of government and so on. So they, and, and what's happened over time is we've built up all these enormous bureaucracies that have to go and interpret what the law means in, in these like really fine, fine tuned, uh, ways, like with all the regulations and so on. It's not just like Congress is actually laying out the law that, that the policeman, or the, like the ATF agent or whatever is actually enforcing. They're they're sort of making these laws, but there's there's layers of 
other stuff between that and and actually what goes on the ground, which is all formally controlled by the executive. Yeah, I mean, um, so I, I was about to jump in there and, and, and object until you started talking about the bureaucracy because, uh, you know, the president at, at this point in time does not have the ability to just jump in and make sure things are executed on the ground level, especially when... Yeah, so, so like there's, there's an interesting tension there, which is that formally the president actually has this very large domain, which, which is like all these things are technically under the executive, right? Um, but then informally, they don't actually answer to the president. And so you have, you have like the formal powers of the president are simultaneously such that he should be doing... Um, like almost acting as a legislator in chief just because he actually is the one deciding uh, or, or at the top of the pyramid that that's sort of actually deciding which laws get enforced against who. Um, and, but at the same time, that pyramid is not actually very well constructed such that being at the top of it doesn't actually give you control over it. And so that's like two different sources of, of like frustration on this issue. Basically, what you have going on is that... Uh the the president essentially does some amount of foreign policy and setting of priorities for bureaucracies but the president's at a major information asymmetry and so he tends to get uh completely overcome by the expertise and and long-standing traditions and 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 uh workforce in the bureaucracies yeah the permanent government exactly so that you know the priorities can only go so far and then then congress itself at this point, just signs, you know, the enabling checks for these bureaucracies because it's very difficult for them to seriously hold them to account because the idea that they would actually pull funding is not even really on the table, even if they threaten it. So the thing that's that's yeah, most and, dry- and this yeah, go ahead. Th- th- this kind of comes back to like some interesting theoretical points about liberalism and the state. Um, so. The founding fathers are sitting there being like, how do we limit the power of the government? And they imagined that the power would reside in the politicians, right? We're electing these guys. They have all these formal powers, etc. right? More specifically, um, they're electing themselves or they are being well, elected. Yeah I, yeah, I guess so. But but there, there's this idea of like limiting the limiting the power of of what these sort of merely elected people can do. Um, and but the idea was, I think that no one would have the powers that that are being denied to the government like you're you're trying to limit the power of the government and and the idea is well no one's going to have it and and it might be a failure of imagination i'm not sure they might have thought oh well these powers will just sort of like slide back into civil society or something um but they they sort of imagined that all the government power would reside in the politicians but the nature of the state is that it tends to end up with a lot of uh, a, a lot of very large powers and and um and like you can't really uh the, the incentive to just to to create those powers is so large that you can't just like sort of uh legislate them away with with some constitution um and so you have this this weird state where the, you know the government is going to build those powers um but the elected people aren't really allowed to use them uh, or the elected people are cycled out every n years so that they can never really get the lay of the land and, and really become a proper ruling class. And, and so instead, you end up with this bureaucratic 
system that that is ruling that wasn't part of the constitution wasn't in the constitution but ends up being the the sort of this actually very large and powerful part of the government um and it's it's like i think it sort of comes down to this liberal tendency to think like power can be contained and ordered around in a way and and like circumscribed with with these constitutional ideas um that like if we don't let the politicians kind of create these really long-standing dynasties well then no one will um but i but i think sort of empirically that turns out to be Mm. false well i think this is actually an extremely useful place in the discussion to bring in the concept of post-liberalism, which is something that we have, both our publications, I think, have discussed. And in in the context of Palladium, you know, I think the concept was useful for us because it was defined uh, as a negation, right? It was opening a window without inserting content. And that's analytically useful because it lets you imagine and try to think about how other structures might try to resolve these same questions, um, but, you know, in, in, in terms of practical reality, there can be many post-liberalisms, there can be many responses and experiments, maybe some fail, maybe some aren't actually post-liberal, but are just updates of liberalism itself. Um, I know that, uh, I don't know if you've seen the article, Gladden, but Aris Racinos uh, wrote in the tablet an article called America's Illiberal Pretenders and Europe's Post-Liberal States where he essentially made the argument that um, it's extremely difficult for America to actually have any kind of post-liberal experiment. So in a case like Hungary or China, the governing class is able to buy in, become stakeholders to something different because they have no deep entrenched attachment to a liberal system, whereas America in a lot of ways is the liberal world order. And so, you know, in in this case, uh, an argument can be made that maybe America is so structurally bounded by uh, and, and at the foundation of the liberal order as it exists, that using this concept of post-liberal in the American context almost can't be done. Uh, I, I do know that con- that term is also now being used as a more um, restricted political label. Uh, which I, I honestly suspect may make it less useful for analysis if it just becomes this kind of tribal and factional term. Yeah, but I think that question. I, I think the question still term? remains, though. The term post-liberal. Yeah, yeah. I, I've seen this used now a little bit for uh, p- people on the right who have engaged in critique of liberalism, but in, in almost you know the post-liberals, a more factional term. But I'd, I, I would want. I, I'd like to discuss this more in terms of. Um, as you say in your piece, right, liberalism is intended to create a narrative and account that explains these institutions of power that exist. If we think there are fundamental problems, is it possible in America to actually create a different narrative for why these things exist? Um, no, that's, uh, I mean, uh, again, a number, number of very good questions, and, um, and, I, and I had a couple of thoughts while you were speaking I mean, first of all, with regard to the article in the tablet, and I have not uh, refreshed my memory of that, so, you know, just going on what you said and, and drawing on something in my article, I mean, I, 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 on the basis of what we've already said about the bureaucratic or, or administrative state, you know, and, and even on the basis of what 
quote-unquote conservatives say in the United States, we've already left, you know, far behind the supposedly, you know, self-operating liberal political system, right? We left that behind a long time ago um, through the creation of that. I mean, at least if you accept the, if you could accept descriptively the kind of conservative line, we already left that behind through the creation of the administrative state because we recognized, uh, or even Congress recognized, uh, that there were all sorts of questions that it couldn't spend its time, um, you know, answering or you know, gathering expertise about. The only question about whether that bureaucratic or administrative state is part of the liberal system or not is whether its decisions are political or not. Like whether there's an irreducibly political element of the decisions that it makes, um, or whether all of its decisions are simply a form of optimal information processing. Um, and, you know, I think what the crisis or like long-term decline of neoliberalism uh, seems to show is that everyone knows that those, that people in those systems are making political decisions about what is good and bad. They're not, we don't, we don't have like a, you know, we don't have an optimally function information processor uh, which tells us what forms of industry we need in the United States, right? We have one that has actually been um, oriented around particular ends. Um, the end of, you know, creating a post-industrial society or uh, something like that. Um, and second, you know, we don't really have a liberal system in, this, in, in terms of the ends that it's pursuing. Um, this was a point that I tried to make at the beginning of that article on the party of the state, namely that the only reason uh, that conservatives in the United States can claim that they are liberals is that liberals have already vacated the field of, 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 uh, of liberalism regarding ends, right? We all know that, you know, once, once liberalism becomes some form of progressivism, whatever that, you know, it's a, probably a probably a bad way of putting it, but, but um, you know, uh, maybe, a better, maybe a better way of putting it that, that doesn't rely on the word progressive too much is, you know, once conservatives are the only ones left calling themselves liberals, something has happened, right? And the thing that has happened is that some particular goal uh, for human life is being uh, pursued by everyone other than the self-described liberals. Um, so, what is the what are the uh, what are the goals at which our society is aimed? You know, it's not the it's not the case that we have a you know quote unquote liberal political system in the sense that it's not that it's you know just set up with some preliminary conditions and allowing everything else to operate. Um, no, I mean it's aimed at it's 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 aimed at creating uh, consumers, um, and that's a specific thing with particular characteristics that were analyzed, you know, especially by, you know, all of our favorite, um, you know, postmodern theorists, etc. Um, and, you know, people who are, and, and as a part of that, you know, people who are detached from any sort of, uh, any sort of tradition or, you know, classical framework of, um, you know, structure yeah, like or order it, or something like that. I mean, so uh, yeah, it's I, I've, it's I've, 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 I've lost the original question at this point. 
Um, but I think what I'm what I, what I'm what I'm going at is the point, and I think it's an important one to make, is that you know our society has therefore been post-liberal in key ways for a long time. You know, we published this article by Philip Morawski on the on the neoliberals. None of the neoliberals were really liberals. You know, <laughs> I mean, they knew that they they didn't think that they were simply, um, you know unleashing human creativity or something like that. I mean, they knew very well that markets of the sort that they desired were created by states. Um, and they worked very hard at getting those markets created by states and knew what they were doing. Um, well, it's, it's certainly it's, even it's, an account it's of later neoliberalism where you can, and I've, I've seen people make this argument, where you can really think of later neoliberalism as a purposeful deconstruction of that order that had existed in the 60s and 70s under the influence of like a stronger labor movement where now they were trying to take parts of this liberal order away from the democratic element through the mechanism of privatization and international institutions. But I mean, th this isn't even, I think, necessarily a new uh, observation. Uh, Marx in, in the 1850s, I, I think in the the 18th premier of Louis Bonaparte, he talks about the, the bourgeois state and how it's creating um, the set of institutions for the exercise of its power. And that was a very traditional leftist critique um, that the, the promises of the French Revolution or of the Enlightenment had been forwarded but then short-stopped um, by, by the rise of the bourgeois state, and it was only going to be the later workers' movement that was able to fully realize them. So I, I, I no, think I this is actually... Completely, completely agree. These are not... Those, those, yeah, those are not innovative points at all, and yet they're ones that... Um, I think they they're still relevant now in a new way, right? But I mean, I think they're important for deciding whether or not to use the word post-liberalism or not, which I don't. Yes, absolutely. So. Um, I think there might be an interesting question to touch on here. So, in in your piece on the party of the state, you highlight um, the idea of national unity governments, uh, and, and I think China and Italy sort of mentioned these now. Obviously, uh, we I would argue that in the era of FDR, something like that did arise. I mean, there was a significant expansion and restructuring of the American political order that lasted beyond FDR's own time in office. On the other hand, we also see there that ultimately, because this there was a certain class collaboration going on here, right? There was a very powerful labor movement. I mean, FDR was certainly... A very leftist president in a lot of ways, but the the role of capital and of business in the resulting order was such that a generation later, capital could also reassert itself, and that's you know we end up seeing this reaction in in Reagan in the U.S. and Thatcher in the U.K. and so th this experiment really seems to only last a generation. What sort of time frame do you think it's possible to think about when we talk about concepts like a party of the state? Because, you know, a, a generation might even be a really long time by the standards of current politics. But I, I think that it, it's a little uh, underwhelming in a lot of ways to think that your grandchildren may end up in something completely different than what you're looking to build um, so, so what, what is the appropriate timeline to be thinking about these things? Yeah. I mean, uh, for myself, I never think about timelines, um, with regard to, with regard to, 
um, that I've question has never never crossed my mind. Um, I think it. I think you know, not to be trite, but you know, the party of the state is a is a state of mind. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, it's a consciousness. It's, yeah, it's a, I, I don't know about that, but that was a good article. Um, you, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a state of mind, and it's and uh, and therefore it's illustrative of a problem in how we relate to power. Now I'm just repeating ourselves from earlier, um, but you know, if you think of yourself as a, I think what the party of the state is intended to call into being. Um, is thinking of oneself, um, or at least th this is um, the selves in question, or the people in question would be those who have some um, plausible case, uh, plausible scenario under which they might exercise or advise on the exercise of power. This is not for this is not for everyone, um, but you know, people um, need to think. Those people need to think of themselves as advisors to the exercise of power. Um, that too is not an innovative thought at all. It's simply the you know entire way that political advice literature conceived itself you know up through I don't know at least the time of Machiavelli and probably through the anti-Machiavellians for the succeeding century and um, you know probably up until up up until our own time. But it's a problem. It's a clear problem. Um, it's a clear problem on the right um, that you know. People with serious political interests don't think of themselves as advisors to um, the exercise of power. So that's all the party of the state is. I mean, it's those who are willing to um, advise on the exercise of power. That I, that, that I view is that that's that's all it is. And in so and in so far as um, Insofar as what political advice literature always needs is a correction of errors, um, you know, not in a, not in obviously a heavy-handed way, but you know, when the pendulum has swung one direction, you know, you have to um, state it, you know, state what's necessary, and in, in a, sometimes in a in a straightforward way, and that's what the that's what the language of the party of the state uh, is intended to is intended to point out. Now. If I can go on for just another minute or so, um, without without um, without being rude, um, you know, one never knows what sort of um, one one can never be confident that forms of political knowledge or or legal knowledge or um, political economic expertise or um, philological expertise or historical knowledge or I don't know canonistic knowledge or knowledge of Roman law or whatever one can never be confident that those um, are past their date of importance um, so you know one we have to think about um, you know how to be ready with useful knowledge at the time that that knowledge is necessary um, and I mean, I, I guess the that's just a simple maxim of which I think the consequences are uh, are vast, not consequences that any one person can, um, um, you know. Obviously, no one sets out, least of all myself, to be, you know, expert in all of those areas. Um, but the right way to think about timeline is that um, some forms of knowledge might might be suddenly 
uh, necessary right when it seems that they're not, or, or just after a, a period of time in which it seems that they're not. Um, and I think that's, that's true of, a, true of a, a wide variety of things. Um, now, what, if I can, again, just make one last comment on how, in what scenario I, we could possibly think of in which this, you know, how to, how to, how to concretize that, you know, in, in the United States somewhat. Um, you know, we've discussed the fact that, you know, people in electing the president think they're electing a legislator in chief. They're not actually doing so. Um, because even if we take a you know strong view of the executive, after all, the Constitution says the executive power is uh, vested in a president of the United States, not in a you know not in a it's not it's a singular uh, executive, not a multiple executive, not a multiple executive. Nevertheless, you know there's a huge um, there's a huge if we if we can say there's a huge you know administrative or bureaucratic system um, you know connected to the executive somehow, this administrative branch uh, or administrative state or, or, or bureaucratic branch, you know, if we recognize that it's making, um, that there are political decisions, uh, not simply sort of information processing, not simply um, sort of decisions based on expertise, um, then we might want to think about uh, whether there are, you know, possible ways to um, advise it politically um, or to you know have some kind of um, to heighten or make obvious the political character of decision making uh, within that bureaucracy you know one way I guess which is not likely you know seems not likely to happen is for a president to bring it to heel um, and impose his will on it um, and there are obvious, obviously some limits, including the informational asymmetry you mentioned earlier that, um, that make that difficult. Um, another way would be something, um, another way would be something like stakeholder governance. <laughs> um, there are a lot of, a lot of decisions are already made within, um, administrative bodies, um, that take into consideration, you know, the interest of, or there are a lot of like three person panels in which, um, there's some, um, you know, representation from, you know, an industry involved or consumers or an environmental group um, or, or something like that. Um, you know, you could imagine, uh, you can imagine a, a much larger transformation again, which is not likely to happen, um, but no less likely than anything else. Um, in which, you know, we, we take one of our vestigial legislative structures like the Senate, um, and reconfigure it as a very large, um, you know, body with, um, you know, represent with, uh, you know, representatives of all of the major, uh, sort of stakeholders within American society and have it advise and have it sort of repurposed, um, as an advice giving body, uh, in rulemaking within the, within the bureaucracy or administrative branch. That to me is, I mean, again, that's, unlikely to happen, you know, it's just a hazy idea, um, but it's no less likely than any other particular political transformation, um, and it's one, and would, and it's a, it's a, it's a plausible one insofar as, you know, it, it, uh, it, it would, it would involve, you know, taking one element of the, our political structure and recognizing that the rest of the political structure around it has already been, 
has already departed so much from the original conditions that simply seeking to restore the original conditions is foolish and stupid. Um, and, you know, it should be repurposed accordingly. Um, so yeah, I well, think, this seems you know, to be a more, a more accurate uh, application of the idea of subsidiarity in the context of the modern American administrative state. Uh, this, you know, it's a somewhat abused term, but uh, in fact, when you apply it and think about it properly, Th this this probably sounds like something that's more honest and and thus uh more useful um a, a, as something that would actually make the coherence of the american state much better and thus better able to achieve its ends yeah i mean at least that's the idea that's the sort of thinking that i would hope to you know uh inspire is not the right word but you know that, that that seems to me a, a kind of plausible, if unlikely, form of you know regime transition or you know or constitutional change or or political acknowledgement of an underlying constitutional change uh, that's within the realm of possibility and you know isn't is neither liberal nor anti-liberal. I mean, part of my I think toward the end of my article on on the party of the state, even though I just address this in, you know, a few sentences, you know, I, I expressed my apprehension over the word, um, over, you know, th over political movements which are post-liberal of, you know, thinking too much about that or, or overthinking it, particularly in, in the sense that, um, you know, liberalism being a victorious ideology has, uh, or at least, you know, temporarily victorious ideology in, in, um, in a large, large part of the Western world and, you know, in, um, in recent centuries, uh, has claimed that all good things are liberal. You know, I mean, it claims that, the that thinking about the balance of power is intrinsically liberal or thinking about, um, you know, having different, um, having different, departments of government that's you know these are all liberal accomplishments and um and there's a there's simply a danger which i don't think i mean not not that your journal or ours has has fallen into it um of uh of you know a accepting liberalism's account of itself as the either the originator or inheritor of all good things and consequently rejecting some of those things in the process of, of being um, non-liberal or, or post-liberal. I think, I mean, that's, that is a danger. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, you know, it just means that we, it just means that it's incumbent upon those who are um, thinking about these matters to, to have a, have a clearer understanding of, um, you know, the, the myths and realities of the, you know, origins and, and character of modern political ideas. I mean, it's not, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, and it's, and it's even something that, you know, good old fashioned liberal conservatives fall into all the time thinking that, um, you know, well, you know, if you're post-liberal, then um, doesn't that mean that you, you know, reject the um, ability to um, confront your accuser in court, which is a, um, you know, something that the common law tradition originated or something like that, you know, when in fact, you know, so many of those features of our legal system are, you know, aspects of the canonistic tradition sure, from sure. the 12th and 13th centuries, etc. And they're not going anywhere. And even in the case of liberalism itself, I think that 
the the key thing is you have to actually understand where liberalism managed to outcompete its competitors um, and actually do certain things better than what came before. And I think that uh, I mean th th this isn't absent from the right either, but I uh, certainly among the the left with you know the the, the Western left uh, be be it social democratic or Marxist or you know, these various factions, because there's a much stronger consciousness of a continuity with that tradition. I think that's likely always been a much more explicit part of that, the various critiques that go on there. But in fact, there's, there's no, there's no critique that can be made of liberalism as a tradition. And there's really nothing, there is no post-liberal experiment. And I think in any part of the Western world, least of all America, that can happen without understanding where and why liberalism worked. There's a fantastic quote I just came across recently by uh, Bonaparte, who's speaking the French context, obviously, but he states that uh, from Clovis to the Committee of Public Safety, I consider myself in solidarity with everything that has been done. And I, I think that there's something to that where when people gain a state consciousness, they start to, and you even hear about this on a much more personal level, I think, with with presidents, where they'll talk about looking at predecessors who they had even politically opposed, and they'll kind of have a, a more refined understanding of the decisions they made, even if they disagree with them, because they're now in the same position. And so that that's a very useful part of thinking through this lens. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, that's exactly the view of, of everyone whose name was Napoleon. Um, yeah. you know, there's, um, I mean, that is the, that is the way of thinking of the French Empire is that, you know, we can, we can acknowledge uh, and embrace, you know, our, this royal element um, and, uh, and the element of the, of the revolution as well. And that was, you know, even, even, a, even a part of all of the um, Napoleonic, you know, architectural projects as well. Um, so, I mean, the only point that I would, the only point that I would make is that, um, you know, we'd have, we'd want to specify in what specific context we thought that liberalism is the thing that had won, as opposed to being the explanatory ideology which went alongside some other victory. Um, and if you go with way of thinking number two, um, and you know you view at least some of the success of liberalism in in spreading itself as a way of thinking, um, as explanatory um, of say the success of modern industrial economies or the success of yeah the, or the success of modernization programs, um, you know you might. Um, you might form another view, maybe at least loosely a more Marxist view um, of the relationship between economic success or economic productivity and and ideology. And it seems to me that you know one thing that the that the populist right or nationalist right, by and large, has been has been missing is you know, in most places any serious. Um, consideration of, of, of how to go about um, either, you know, recovering uh, industrial and, and economic success or, or, or planning for it in the future. Um, so, I mean, often, you know, at least if, if we could form a kind of 
pop Marxist view that, you know, to the, to the victor go the spoils. And in many cases, you know, liberalism has been the, you know, ideological spoils of some other form of victory. Um, One quick point I wanted to make about the spread of liberalism. Um, Roland Paris recently wrote this excellent article about uh, liberal peace building in which he surveyed the literature and, and looked at different, uh, you know, Marxist and, and post-colonial and post-structuralist critiques of, of uh, liberal interventions in various uh, African countries or just generally like war-torn countries where, say, the United Nations had deployed or the U.S. had deployed or some combination. And basically what he said was, I'm not really sure that any of these critiques uh, really fundamentally undermine liberalism in any substantial way. Like, if we take the Marxist critique about, say, like, I don't know, an unfair distribution of resources or the relationship of labor and capital, like, you know, and he says, I, I don't see why there's uh, any reason why we can't have uh, fairer economic institutions under liberalism. So I don't see this as, say, like, uh, something that vaults us necessarily towards post-liberalism and he goes down this list of maybe 10 different critiques and says liberalism can incorporate all of these things and so in what sense are these actually uh, genuinely post-liberal as opposed to just liberal and so I think one of the ways that li liberalism perpetuates itself is that there's an ongoing discourse among academics and policymakers and so on who recognize each other as genuine liberals and then they kind of test each other to see what do we intuitively feel like uh, these institutions can do? Like, how far can they go? How much can they incorporate that we can all kind of accept and, and get around in a way that doesn't make us feel uncomfortable? So it's like a, a collective uh, process of intuition pumping about the limits of in, in, uh, institutions, really. And, and so I think that's an interesting point as to how... Uh, the actual process works of liberalism integrating various criticisms so that it, it retains its uh, status. That's, that's just the point I wanted to get out of the way on that. Yeah, so what I want to do here um, in, in the, the final minutes of the conversation uh, is, so American Affairs, uh, as, as I had mentioned earlier, has done some very interesting work on industrial policy. Um, and its role both now and, and in American life. We won't go through it right now, but there's particularly um, the the article National Developmentism from Forgotten Tradition to New Consensus. That was by Robert Atkinson and Michael Lind. And it's a very interesting piece in that it laid out, uh, you know, pe people kind of, the surface level debate becomes very simplistic about, you know, markets versus intervention and so on and so forth. But this piece highlights uh, five schools um, of, of thought about the role of the American economy and its relationship with the global economy. And so I, I think that that was um, a very good conceptual piece. What I want to maybe in a more limited way just touch on here is the notion that seems to be almost dead at this point where, you know, politics has its sphere, economics has its sphere, um, and both on on the contemporary right and left, this idea seems to be essentially fading away. Uh, I'd say right now the left seems to have a more fleshed out view 
of the consequences of this, perhaps because in, in American life, at least, they've, uh, you know, in the last few decades kept slightly more of a tradition of state intervention, although not to a significant degree. But we look at something like the Green New Deal, which, you know, there, there's many avenues of critique one could take about it, but it does represent this notion of a greater good that the state and society have essentially a duty to work together toward and where uh, large-scale direction and intervention are justified on those grounds. And uh, I guess I, it'd be interesting to just discuss, do you think that that notion is going to become hegemonic, uh, you know, in, in, in all the major or across the political spectrum in the U.S.? Um or conversely, I mean, you know, within the conservative milieu, both the institutions, but also the base has very much imbibed and uh, defended for so long talking points, whether it be taxes or state intervention in the economy or any of these things where, okay, maybe we can talk about the problems that labor has been having, but has the conservative movement actually now uh, kind of short-stopped itself from ever being able to discuss the solutions to these problems. Um, you know, because when I, you know, I see certain circles where, all right, there's certain people um, in the conservative milieu who will talk sometimes about, okay, maybe we need more stated intervention. But, you know, you talk to the average person, even the average, you know, more educated person, and there really is just a reactive attitude toward, uh, you know, even even what President Obama embarked on, the very limited kind of financial and industrial stuff that his administration did, much less anything on the scale of FDR. So I, I'll, I'll leave it open to you there, Gladden. Well, there is no alternative. <laughs> I mean, you know, to borrow the to borrow the neoliberal phrase. Um, you know, I think we're, I had to chuckle a little bit when you asked whether there was any hope for for the conservative movement on this point, and I'm sure there's not. Um, at least, at least if we view this as not really a, a question that pertains to conservatism or or liberalism at all. This is a pretty good. Um, this is the question of industrial policy. Is I, I I don't know how you get a topic closer to the idea of um, the party of the state or you know a state seeking its good than that. Now, I mean, with that. Preliminary aside, I'm not an expert in um, in the details of, of every uh, form that industrial policy should take. I'm a Lindian um, on industrial policy, and and um, and certainly tend to subscribe to his uh, his view of national developmentalism. Um, and frankly, frankly, Mike Lind was, um, you know. Uh, uh, a voice crying in the wilderness on on industrial policy throughout the 1990s. You know, starting from uh, you know all the way all the way through the 1990s um, and um, and and through today. Um, and in particular, I mean, again, you know, when we're looking for elements of the American tradition that aren't liberal or it, which can be thought of as liberal or non -li it's just where it's not a very helpful term. The Hamiltonian tradition is probably um, such a tradition, and it's one that's the one that um, Lind has done so much to um, sort of keep afloat and um, and show the vitality of it. Um, I mean, there are a couple of ways in which 
you know, Hamilton is a Hamilton or Hamiltonianism is not best thought of with the categories that sort of late liberalism uh, presents to us. One is in his view of power. Um, I think I quoted this in the in the Party of the State article because it's my favorite Federalist paper, Federalist number twenty three. You know, when you when you talk about whether the American tradition seeks to limit the power of the state, the Hamiltonian contribution is that um, there's a limitation on the ends of the federal government, but not a limitation on its means. At least that's a first sketch of, of what's going on. Um, you know, he says in Federalist Paper 23, you know, um, what are the purposes of the federal government? Uh, building fleets, um, you know, caring for the common defense, um, you know, regulation of commerce, et cetera, et cetera. And those, the powers that are proportionate to those ends um, exist without limitation. So the power of the federal government with regard to those ends isn't um, intrinsically limited. It might be limited in other ways insofar as, you know, the process of decision making is partly, you know, spread among the different branches and so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, we're, we're not establishing um, the regulation of commerce, you know, the defense of the country, you know, the um, um, raising of armies and building of fleets. We're not establishing that as a goal of our government and then limiting our ability to pursue it. We are, uh, we are establishing that as the goal of the federal government so that the power of the federal government can be unleashed with respect to those ends. Those are its ends, and, it's, and it, the limitation of its power is that it has a limited set of ends that it pursues. It doesn't pursue all ends. Other ends or purposes um, are left to you know, more subsidiary bodies or whatever. So even within the American tradition, there is definitely a consciously or self-consciously statist element um, which is tied to... Um, something that we would eventually call industrial policy. Um, it seems to me that the main threat or the main reason that that's, um, you know, one of the main, at least some of the main reasons that that's um, come into, you know, fallen out of favor are, you know, those are primarily ideological reasons. Um, and, you know, particularly on the right, there's kind of funny thing where, um, you know, you read a lot of Tocqueville and you're supposed to come to the conclusion that, you know, what's really great about America is our associations. You know, we, people form all these wonderful civic associations and, you know, occasionally they go wrong like the temperance movement. Um, but, uh, you know, we have this wonderful civil society which reflects all the different, you know, views and is like a locus of civic engagement where ordinary people are thinking about what you, We all know that that's not how... Um, you know, civil society in the political space works at all. You know, there's large foundations which are trying to set the line for, you know, the political parties uh, that they fund, candidates that they fund, magazines that they fund, etc. Um, and on the right, uh, those, you know, that institutional apparatus, you know, Amer the American conservative institutional apparatus has had basically no presence since the end of the Cold War on industrial questions. 
Now, during the Cold War, um, you know, people would often critique the right by saying, well, you know, you talk about um, wanting, you talk about being in favor of limited government, but look, you know, you're the very authors of the military-industrial complex, you know, come on, American right, like, be more honest about what your intent is. It's like, well, can't, why can't we get back to that? Why has the American right, since the end of the Cold War, um, just responded to that by saying, okay, you're right, well, we'll let's try to be more consistently libertarian. Like, where's, where's the right that recognized um, that a massive military-industrial complex of some sort was necessary uh, for securing our power um, and for fostering the sort of, you know, industrial innovation that this country is, is good at. Um, so that's the question to which, you know, the necessary revival um, of industrial policy is necessary, um, and fostering that has been one of the main goals of American affairs. I won't go on um, too much longer. I'll just I'll just say, um, you know, industrial policy is a good example of one of those spheres of knowledge which falls out of favor and can suddenly be important again. For example, when everyone realizes that, um, you know, we're facing a uh, a crisis in manufacturing now and you know in the near future when we look at our leading and in, leading industrial and manufacturing competitors like china so it just so happens that a lot of the people who were thinking about industrial policy um have been you know scholars and academics sort of plying their trade you know many of them are on the left sort of think of maybe sort of think of themselves as being on the old left um you know insofar as they're interested in you know industrial production and things like that um, so now is the time. This is it's it's. I think that's a. I think industrial policy is a, is a. You know, obviously coordinate with the party of the state, or you know, seeking to uh, make the country strong uh, and powerful, and will require a lot of. Uh, you know, will require a lot of work. Mm-hmm. So Th- this uh, reminds me of something that had been brought up in the. Case for a New State Consciousness article on Palladium by K. Christopher Delk. I'll just read it out here because I think it's quite relevant to this discussion. So, uh, starting the quote here, An overlooked aspect of administering the state is the preservation of its power, that which enables it to actually govern. This is a prerequisite for all other ends which the state pursues. Few, if any, states consider power to be the only goal of their existence. By virtue of making decisions and pursuing goals, they embody a particular value system and substantive worldview. One might pursue socialist construction, another a religious mission, yet another an economic humanitarian mission. But all must have the ability to realize their decisions, else there are no state at all. End quote. So, I mean, I think that definitely hits on this point that um, the, the reason I think that this distinction between economics and politics is disappearing by necessity is that it was never actually true, right? Economic power is power. Uh, and and in every stage of American history, economic power has driven political decision-making and vice versa. I mean, we even saw it in the Iraq war period. Uh, we discussed that a bit on previous podcasts. We're seeing it now in, in current geopolitical developments. Um, and so I, I think you're definitely right that there's a certain logic uh, a political logic occurring in the world order that will essentially force all or at least most factions within the American state to have to explicitly address this question. There really seems no way um, out of that. 
and and it's going to have to return to this notion that when we are discussing economic power, we are discussing an aspect of of not only the the civic society but also of the state itself because these lines are never really there long term. Right. So I. I have one theory about the separation of, of politics and economics that I, I wrote about briefly in, in my Huawei piece for Palladium not too long ago, which is that yeah. uh, up until recently, it's mostly been a, a purely philosophical matter uh, in public consciousness uh, and only confined to thought experiments precisely because uh, U.S. hegemony has prevented uh, other powers from from uh, projecting political power via economic institutions, uh, but that's suddenly no longer the case, right? W- especially with Huawei, where there is this threat of 5G infrastructure uh, being deeply embedded in, in Europe and North America, and suddenly this recognition that China is now starting to compete with us, not quite peer-to-peer yet, but the writing is on the wall as far as a lot of people are concerned. And so I think these issues, especially now that a lot of intelligence services, you know, have accused Huawei of, of actually using its equipment and smartphones and software for, you know, espionage on behalf of, of the Chinese government, that this is suddenly no longer a thought experiment. And so it doesn't really make sense to distinguish uh, politics and economics the way it's traditionally been done because no one else is. Well, at least we've got the 737 MAX, you know. I mean, like we've got we've got some we've got some pretty powerful stuff out there. Um, that's uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, I think you're. I think that's 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 very true. Um, you know, I don't know if you've seen these reports, but um, uh, Marco Rubio's office put out a couple of excellent reports this spring. Uh, one was called. Have you seen these? One no, was called Made. So. One was called Made in China, twenty twenty five, and the future of American industry. Um, and these are and uh, forget the name of the other one. Um, uh, da, 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 da. We can uh, look yeah, it up. And, yeah, there was. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, American investment in the twenty first century, um, and they both start from the premise that um, you know it's wrong to think of America as not having had an industrial policy. We have had an industrial policy. Precisely the, you know, the all of the policies that we have um, implemented um, that have led to you know offshore offshoring of manufacturing, um, you know thinking of ourselves as primarily a you know creative economy um, and service uh, like a creative economy with some service jobs attached to it, you know Uber for X or whatever um, as well. All of those are. Those are explicit industrial policies um, or explicit industrial goals with particular policies attached to them. Um, you know, I think the first of those two reports was the one on Made in China 2025, and um, and the Rubio team basically, at least as far as I can see from the report, you know, went through every major um, you know uh, high industrial um, industry like. It's got aerospace, railway, biotech, robotics, you know, agricultural machinery, etc., um, and analyze, you know, what China has done or is doing in order to uh, strengthen, to build and strengthen its manufacturing base, um, and how we should use 
the power of the federal government to respond to that, you know, either through uh, supporting American industry in those areas or, you know, taking countervailing um, trade actions and, and, um, and other actions to respond to it. So there is some, there is new thinking um, coming out on these, on, on these issues, but there's a long way to go, I think, to, there's a long way to go to, to, maybe, well, I was going to say there's a long way to go to making it into a political movement, but that, again, may be the wrong way of thinking about it. I mean, there's already been the, um, we've already seen, at least if we accept that part of the um, vote which went to Trump in 2016 was aimed at this issue, you know, we've already seen the popular demand for um, a revivified American manufacturing base. And it's not, and, and the the policies that are that are necessary are in many cases, um, you know, ones that can be, you know, pursued by already existing um, elements of the American uh, administrative state or bureaucracy. Um, so it's really, um, I think I think Lynn said in in one of his articles, um, you know, that in many cases it's not a matter of you know, coming up with new policies. It's a matter of political power uh, or, or political will. And we simply have, you know, those who are, um, you know, working in the elements of our state apparatus which uh, concern themselves with American industrial capacity have to push as hard as possible on these issues. And I think it's going to open an interesting, you know, we t- talked about the notion of the common good earlier. And I think this will open this question up a lot more explicitly, because on the one hand, conceptually, it seems like you would first need to have some idea of what the the common good looks like, and then you're almost reverse engineering the policy process of, well, how do we get there? I suspect that in practice, it's actually going to be more that, you know, the these lower level concerns are going to awaken the fact that we don't actually seem to have a substantive idea of what the the values undergirding this broad level decision making are, what the vision we're looking for society should be, and that will like in in kind of a, a reverse motion, we're going to get from uh, th- these immediate decisions to okay, well now now we need to actually understand an end goal, and in order to actually confront that and have some kind of real plan coming out of it, uh, I hesitate to say discussion because I think in reality generally these discussions are more factional disputes that resolve themselves one way or another but the the american structure as a whole will need to you know either it will have ongoing internal tension and damage or it will coordinate in the direction of some kind of higher goal and in that there will implicitly by necessity be this question of the common good that has to be addressed and i think that'll certainly do a lot to bring that concept back into uh, a real uh, a form of conversation that has real consequences, that has real teeth and isn't just, you know, walled off in some ivory tower somewhere. Well, I think, I mean, a couple of points come to mind. I mean, I think um, the dynamic that you described is, is um, tied up with several features of, you know, modern politics and the modern economy, which leave us with, um, you know, needing to assert that the state will be the locus of determining the common good in these matters. So what am I, what, let me try to, 
I don't like the word unpack. Let me try to explain what I'm thinking about. In a, and this might tie back into our earlier discussion about the state of modern political philosophy education. Um, you know, in a typical, um, in a lot of typical political philosophy courses, um, you know, you'll see a, a presentation of you know, ancient and medieval thought as, you know, being politics is oriented around the common good. Um, and we don't yet have, the, you know, the attempt to dominate nature scientifically that we get from Machiavelli and later. Um, then in modern philosophy, we get um, the, uh, the rational conquest of nature, right? We get technology, mastery of nature, you know, industrial production, um, and liberalism. So this can't, this, uh, this uh, impulse to dominate nature is not, um, you know, purely found in, in politics, but, you know, the purpose of politics is now just to secure our freedom, and what do we do with our freedom? Um, we do science, you know, we dominate, uh, we dominate nature with science. Um, and the form of, I mean, it, it, it strikes me, thinking about that, you know, that story, um, that it really maps onto um, like the kind of degenerate late capitalist um, Western liberal form of economic production, right? Where we think of uh, you know where we think of um, Silicon Valley and the products that it makes and forms of communication that it makes possible um, as not being politically controlled. Um, but as simply occurring, you know, it's a world in which we move fast and break things and there's constant innovation and innovation has nothing to do with the common good because, you know, the individual entrepreneur has to set out on his own and create some new form of technology which, and the only exciting forms that we think about right now are new forms of communication technology. Um, well, you know, as China has become more, more industrially successful, um, and done so with a you know specific policy of state direction of its economy, or at least you know state cooperation in the direction of its economy. Um, it's clear that there are more political decisions to be made about you know the forms of economic production that we want. It's not there's not it's not simply uh, the alternative is not simply um, you know the common good in a non-technological society on the one hand. And there's no common good in the society of technological mastery of nature. On the other hand, um, I mean, the, the adopting the second view as your interpretation of modern thought, I think, is contingent upon um, not recognizing the role that the state has to play in determining what forms of technology are used, how they're used, to what ends they're used, um, and in that case, you know the sort of American model of the internet as kind of uncontrolled, uncontrollable chaos is, is not, not even, it's no longer even, um, it's not even normative worldwide. Okay, well, on the note of the common good, uh, I think we've been going around an hour and a half now. So um, I, uh, Gladden will open it up to you if you have any final comments, and then uh, Jonah to you to wrap up. No, I'm. You know, no. Just thanks a lot. It's been uh, it's been a very good discussion, and I uh, hope to do it again. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming on the show, Gladden. Um, so for everyone else, uh, this has been Gladden Pappin, D 
Deputy Editor at American Affairs and Assistant Professor of Politics at the University of Dallas. This has been a great podcast, and we hope to see everyone next week. Thanks. See you then, guys.